0: last time on Through the dooryard.
1: So the impact of that fire was more than just losing the buildings. We lost jobs here in Bar Harbor. We lost an economy for several years of people who just trying to get by from having that great boom in five or six months worth of income that could last 12 months. They were actually just trying to get by.
2: We delved into some of the economic impacts of the fire. Welcome back to Through the Dooryard, the podcast for the Bar Harbor Historical Society. I'm Porva, and I'm Maisie, and this is our second episode of Smoke in a Cranberry Bog, a three-part series about the fire of 1947.
0: It was October 17th, 1947, around 4 p.m. The fire department received a call. It was Mrs. Gilbert reporting smoke rising from the cranberry bog between her house and Dollivers dump. To this day, no one knows what started the fire. Theories range from a lit cigarette left behind by cranberry pickers to a trash fire at the dump. Either way, once the fire started, it traveled underground through the peat and root systems.
2: Granted, neither Maisie or I know much about how forest fire starts or burns, we wanted to sit down with someone who could help us understand it a little bit better.
3: Hi, my name is Matt Bartlett, Fire Chief for the Town of Bar Harbor and a lifelong resident of Bar Harbor, and thank you for having me.
2: We wanted to ask Chief Bartlett about what he knows about the Fire 47 through his experience with the Fire Department.
3: You know, Hearing from people who were around at that time and and some of the information that's been passed down through members of the Fire Department, it was obviously in October, 1947. From what's been told, it was a dry summer. And it was, I guess, unusually warm, dry October. Uh, and they got a report of smoke coming from a cranberry bog out off the crooked road, um, right near where the S-turns are. And at that time, they sent one firefighter and one truck out to check out the report. And he did find a fire. Um, He did the best he could to put the fire out himself. Um, Back then, they weren't using the radios like we have today, so he actually had to go find the nearest house that had a phone and call back to the station and say, you know, I need more help. And, you know, can you please send more help?
0: So what happens in those first 24 hours after the fire is reported?
3: I believe they initially thought they had the fire out, um, they put a fire watch on overnight and I think for the next day but then they had a windy day come through and it, it picked the fire, it must have been some embers still in the ground or some burning and that wind came through and it just you know the fire grew intensively from there and it started going down the crooked road and then it went I believe up Norway Drive through McFarland's Hill area but it also branched off going I think the wind was pushing it and it also' was going towards route three or uh, route three and it came down through I think part of Cadillac and then down through uh, Kibo Golf course and Pine Street and the forest like all those houses were, were burned that whole neighborhood was rebuilt after the fire and it literally burned completely around town like the ball field people were at the ball field you know congregating and it literally like pushing towards the downtown and somewhere Eagle Lake Road Eden Street the wind changed direction and pushed it away from town and then kind of wrapped around toward then started towards um, the Jackson Lab and then fingers of it ended up in Seal Harbor as well Otter Creek Seal Harbor area
2: that amounts to over 17,000 acres of land burnt on Mount Desert Island in what is now Acadia National Park. According to the Park Service, on October 22nd alone, approximately 2,300 acres of land was burnt.
0: A disaster of that scale must have been traumatizing to live through. We wanted to hear some of the accounts of the survivors. The following accounts are from Wildfire Loose, a collection of interviews conducted by Joyce Butler, in preparation for her book of the same title, donated to the Maine Folklife Center in 1979.
4: The week of October 23rd, the 16th to the 23rd, about a week that it was, the, the ground was terrible dry. There was no rain and it was hot and humid. And uh, I remember we worked at the factory and opened the window, we had the windows open, but the smoke keep coming in, you could smell it. and then it came, uh, each day at night time, it seemed so to go underground and it would burn in the peat, that's what was happening, There's a peat bog up there and it was burning in that, and then it would come alive and the wind would blow, Well, the day of the 23rd, uh, the wind, in the afternoon, about 3 o'clock, my boss said, uh, you better take off from home, he says, because it's looking bad, so the wind was picking up, and I believe, and i right, that in Rockland, they said, that was, "Oh, the laurel, and rocked on the Coast Guard boat, clocked it at 70 miles an hour there, the wind. And, and it, took, uh, uh, 21, it took 21 minutes when he got to Bar Harbor to destroy the whole Belmont Hotel, a huge hotel, to three stories. In 21, 21 minutes? 21 minutes, it was flat to the ground.
2: That was Bernard Hawks, sharing his experience as someone who was working in Bar Harbor at the North Atlantic Packing Company at the time of the fire. And the woman expressing shock towards the end is Joyce Butler. You'll hear her again in this next interview with Jane Cormier Obermeyer, who is a young girl at the time of the fire and details her evacuation from Bar Harbor with her mother and her older sister, Helen Cormier.
1: I remember that it was a very, very dry summer and unusual unusually dry summer i was young but i can remember people talking about how dry it was a week before the fire that we were evacuated there had been fires breaking out Mm -hmm. the thing that i remember the most about all of this is the smell Mm. i'll I'll really never forget that uh, acrid odor and it's very distinct odor if anybody has been around forest fires mm. you when you smell it you know there's a forest fire it's not like a wood stove odor it's um it's different mm-hmm. you can really recognize it um we were notified i think by loudspeaker speaker going through the town telling us that we would be evacuated and to get we got what we could carry plus our fox terrier dog mm-hmm. and we had to walk to the athletic field, mm-hmm. and uh, that was a good mile and a half from my house, so we were carrying blankets and mm-hmm. suitcases and a dog on a leash, my sister and my mother and myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, we got to the athletic field where I think everybody who had not been able to get out by car, everyone from the town was there. Mm-hmm. Then they announced to us that the fire was headed right for that area, mm-hmm. so we were to walk down to the um, public pier, public wharf that mm-hmm. we've been in Bar Harbor, mm-hmm. clear the other end of town. So we walked down there, and I can remember when we were going up Main Street, my mother looking over, and of the skies were just ablaze, mm-hmm. saying that there goes the house which was two blocks over, mm-hmm. and uh, that we had just filled up the coal bin with coal for the mm-hmm. winter. As it turned out, it didn't burn. So we walked to the wharf and we were bedded down in the, uh, it was a a naval station during the war. and It was abandoned now, then at that time. Now it's a hotel, the Bahaba Hotel. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, we thought we were bedded down for the night. We were right on the water's edge. I was afraid But it was uh, like I was in a dream. Mm -hmm. I I wasn't, uh, being that young, I didn't realize the circumstances. Mm -hmm. And it was more like uh, realizing that this was something that, I I can remember thinking it was like being in the Blitz. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And because there was no electricity in time or anything like that. So with flashlights, we, we bedded down for the night. And we had just settled down. Everybody was lined up like mm-hmm. they would be in the subways sure, <laughs> sure. of London, and uh, they came and announced we couldn't stay there, we had to get off the oh, island. Nice. So um, the seas were just unbelievably rough because the wind was wild, mm-hmm. and we had two choices. We could go by a lobster boat across Frenchman's Bay, or we could take a chance on the army trucks going out through the fire zone. So we decided, uh, mother decided, yeah. that we would go out through the fire zone. So we started, and uh, we had wet tarp over the top of the truck. We um, had the topping over the top when we went by the bluffs, mm-hmm. which were uh, out before you get to Hull's Cove. Mm-hmm. And the, the road is much wider now, but then the road was just wide enough for two cars, and on one side was Cliff, and on the other side was a cliff in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And I can remember looking up and seeing the sparks go over the top of the truck into the ocean Mm -hmm. when we went around that Mm van. We had just gotten through the danger zone, and we were safe, and we were all breathing a sigh of relief. When suddenly we were hit from behind, we later found out that two officers in the jeep had been drinking, and they hit ran the back wheel of the of the, uh-huh. our vehicle and knocked it over my sister was knocked under the truck uh-huh. and she lived for three days and then died uh-huh. i was thrown out of the truck and the only thing that really saved me was my dog my little fox dairy dog pulled me out of the wreckage hmm. and uh, the pe- there were people there and i wished to this day that i could remember their names because they took those of us who weren't hurt seriously into their home for the night. My mother was hurt. She had facial cuts and of Mm. course was in shock. And but she was kept in the house with me and about five other people for the night. And I remember a doctor being there and coming in and examining my mother. And the next morning we went by ambulance to the Ellsworth Hospital, where she spent several days. And uh, in three days, my sister died. By that time, we were able to get back into the town of Bahama. Now, your sister had already gone, obviously, to the hospital. They took her immediately. And uh, they didn't tell me that. They told me, I kept asking for her. And they told me that she was across the street in the other house. And uh, they didn't tell me that. I suppose they didn't want my mother to know because she was in you know, mm-hmm. shock and mm-hmm. very upset, of course. And your father and brother were out fighting, and of course you mm-hmm. didn't know I didn't where. see them. and th- No, we didn't know where. We didn't see them until the next day mm-hmm. uh, when we got to the hospital when we were there. Did you see your sister again? No, I didn't. Mm-hmm. My mother asked me not to go see her. And uh, I wish I had, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. she asked me not to, Mm -hmm. so I didn't. Yes, (laughs) You were close. Very close. Mm -hmm. Very close. Mm -hmm. She Mm -hmm. was five years older than I. Mm -hmm. She always took care of me and Mm -hmm. was a very remarkable young girl. Mm -hmm. It was a very, very terrible shot to my mother. But uh, my mother is a very strong person, and uh, with help of her family, came through this very well, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but she still remembers her. I spoke to her this morning on the phone, and uh, she's very pleased that this is going into a record so that her memory will be kept.
0: Helen was one of several who died on the island during the fire. The loss to the community is immeasurable it can be deeply felt through these accounts and witnessed as one drives past the ruins left behind. However, we also encountered stories that highlight the resilience of the community, from people serving tea to the firefighters and people being welcomed into strangers' homes to anyone who could help fight the fire lending a hand.
3: I think probably at that time, you know, anybody who felt like they could help fight the fire, they, they, they came and due to the size and probably the lack of people, they were just here. I know one of my grandfather, he ended up around Molasses Pond helping put the fire out, working in that area. I've always, you know, I can't ask him unfortunately, but you know, how did you, he, he lived in Seal Cove. Now how does somebody from Seal Cove end up working on a fire in Molasses, by Molasses Pond Mill the woods? You know, I just don't know how he would have managed to get there. I don't really know how long he was there. Um,
0: Throughout Joyce Butler's interviews, it's apparent that everyone had an acquaintance or a family member who helped fight the fire. The fire department today still relies on volunteers just with new techniques and more organization.
3: Nowadays, obviously, with the the times of change, you know, it's a much more structured way of how we need to. Do these things, and and it's a little harder now to just take somebody off to. Hey, you know, I need to put you in molasses pond. Here's a here's a fire hose, and you know, have at it. We just can't do that, you know, because of the lack of training and you know, putting people in harm's way. I haven't been prepared for that type of you know. We have not trained them, so it's a little harder to to really almost impossible to bring that person in. Um, So. But we do get people that can help, you know, there's other ways if we had that we would help, you know. Part of our process here in town is we do have a volunteer coordinator designated. So, you know, they would be tasked with, you know, trying to help set up something with volunteers that, who aren't firefighters.
2: Even today, the town of Bar Harbor isn't a stranger to incidents of fires. Consider the fire at the Blue Nose Inn, for instance, that happened just this year. How does the knowledge of the history of the fire of 1947 impact how we think about fires today?
3: It does. When we do have a large fire, it does seem to bring back the memory or, you know, the the 47 fire. So, you know, that alone just tells you the impact that fire had on the community that 75 years later, you know, when we have a big incident, it's still people still are, geez, you know, we had the 47 fire and, you know, it still brings back those memories. So that it was very impactful to the community and and it, which is you know you don't want to have any of that type of incident of course but I think it's also how make sure people are aware and you know they understand the devastation a big fire can do to a community so people are more conscientious about what they're doing and getting their permits and if they you know they smell smoke they're calling us or if they see something they're calling us you know if they they unfortunately if a fire gets away from them and it's burning in the field, they call us instead of, you know, because I think that knowing what's happened here, you know, it helps people be more conscious of what they're doing and proactive and um, to help it keeping from getting, because we want to get it small. You know, we're happy to come out and go home without having to do anything. That's a good call. You know, hey, you're all set. We're happy to go back to the fire station. So call us quick, call us early. Next time on Through the Dooryard. The fire has always been an agent of change in Bar Harbor. I mean, I think the fire ended up like in the Boston newspapers, you know, so it did gather a lot of attention, you know, nationwide, or, you know, probably more than, I mean, I I think people surprised how many fires were that year.
2: We focus on the aftermath of the fire and the long-lasting changes it's brought. Big thank you to the Special Collections Department at the Raymond H. Fogler Library at the University of Maine and to Chief Bartlett for sitting down with us. This episode cannot be concluded, however, without a big shout-out to Fogtown Brewery for donating proceeds from their last batch of the 47 Smoked Beer to the Bar Harbor Historical Society. Stay tuned for their next batch and for our last and final installment of Smoke in a Cranberry Bog. We'll see you soon.